0: This episode of For real is sponsored by Book Riot's podcasts. If you love this show, you're bound to love many of our others. Check out our newest podcast, Adaptation Nation, for discussions of adaptations both beloved and new. Subscribe to Red or Dead for updates in the world of mysteries and thrillers. Or download SSF Yeah for happenings and recommendations in sci-fi and fantasy. Don't miss When in Romance for updates on all things kissing books. Or Hey YA for excellent conversations about young adult lit. We've got a show for everyone. Just go to bookriot.com/listen for a full list of all our podcasts, or simply type "bookriot" in the search bar of your podcatcher of choice. It'll bring up the full selection of podcasts. Your TBR and the podcast-shaped hole in your heart will be full. Happy listening. Welcome to For Real, a bi-weekly non-fiction books podcast that puts the spotlight on books that tell it like it is, or at least try to. We'll cover new releases, backlist finds, and more. For Real is a book riot podcast and is hosted by me, Kim Yukara, and fellow rioter Alice Burton, recording on Saturday, February 26th. Hello, Alice. How are you today?
1: I have so many books to read.
0: Oh my gosh, I know. I yes. Know.
1: We were, we were talking beforehand about how, like, it's just – when you have, like, a bunch of multiples, like, just going on at the same time, mm-hmm. it gets a little chaotic, starts to feel a little out of control. Yeah. I am now – I feel like I rarely battle that in addition to library due dates, but right now mm-hmm. I am. So I'm, like, constantly, like, checking on Libby and being like, okay, when is this returning? And mm-hmm. I know some people say, just turn off your Kindle, but some of us <laughs> have a Kindle fire, <laughs> and for some reason – that trick doesn't work. So... Oh, yeah. Yeah. it's a bummer. It's, it is a bummer. Uh, and I don't like the regular Kindle. Something about the way the page turns happen, technologically. Mm. I'm not a fan. Yeah. So I'm, like, trying to finish, what is it, The Cruel Prince by Holly Black. Ah, yes, um, yes. That's due back very soon. And then another book that I have forgotten the name of. <laughs> but <laughs> it's just, like, one is due in, like, seven days and one is due in eight days. So I'm like, okay. Oh, it's The Chosen and the Beautiful by Nevo. Um, Which is like the Great Gatsby retelling. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Which I'm like, I read The Great Gatsby one time and I was like 15.
0: We were just – my family was just talking about The Great Gatsby and how – and all the other like books we read in high school and how much we hated many of them. Uh, My sister hated The Great Gatsby. I I don't remember hating it, although I do remember it being like really kind of an annoying book to try and talk about with high school people because like you're trying to get at the symbolism – And it's, like, not subtle at all, but then, like, people didn't get it, and it was just...
1: (laughs) Did you ever watch the show Sports Night? Yes. Okay. This sounds like a a change of topic, (laughs) but it's not. When I was in high school, my main goal was to share the things that I liked with my classmates because the internet was not as big, and Mm -hmm. I didn't have, like, Twitter to just type about it. So I'd be like, hey, everyone, here's the thing I like right now. You should all like it, too. And I did a presentation on The Great Gatsby because this is going to sound pompous, but I had read every book already on our syllabus. My high high school's English program was not advanced. (laughs) So they were like, okay, why don't you just like pick a classic thing that you haven't read and you can do a presentation. So I did The Great Gatsby and I, for some, I forget what my connection was, but I was like, everyone needs to watch Dana and Casey and Sports Night kiss for the first time and i related it to gatsby and daisy oh. like i remember making it was a very tenuous link but i was like <laughs> this is what i'm gonna do just because i want to show everyone this scene
0: mm-hmm. in yeah.
1: sports night yeah eventually my teachers banned me from doing this
0: <laughs> i had a similar experience and i want to say ninth grade english where i like sort of got through everything and they were like all right you can read the scarlet letter and tell us all about it which boy that's a so weird a weird book
1: <laughs> i wanted i was about to be like i like the scarlet letter and then i was I like
0: did Whoa. Kinda, i did kind of i think i did it was more like i had an epiphany when i read it like a ninth grade epiphany that like those are basically just soap operas and if you think of it as a mm-hmm. soap opera it actually becomes much more fun
1: that's that's a great way of thinking about it. I was going to say that I've recently de- re- learned that I should be wary of proclaiming my love for books that I have not revisited in, like, the last mm, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. sometimes, you know, there's, like, some stuff in it that I don't really want to be associated with. Yeah.
0: That at the time, like, didn't register yeah. necessarily as, like, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So, like, at age 20, I really loved The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> <laughs>
0: present Alice may have different feelings. We don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm a little mad at Nathaniel Hawthorne now because he said some bad things, but yeah. primarily about women authors. Uh, mm-hmm. Which, uh, But, you know, he was still good at writing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, Essentially, that's his main good book. I've tried his others and they are very boring. <laughs>
0: Going down a rabbit hole already
1: today. Look, <laughs> it's Saturday. I've had A lot of cold brew. Oh, I wanted to bring (laughs) up another complete shift, but we talked about it briefly before the podcast, and I read about this yesterday. At some point in this podcast, if I ever mentioned Lady Mary Wortley Montague, because I do that in life, I read a lot about her in college. She was the wife of the Turkish ambassador in like 1714, like from England to Turkey, or I guess Constantinople, yeah. And... She thought she was going to be there for a long time. She tried learning Arabic. It was all very impressive. She eventually brought back inoc like smallpox inoculation from that court to England when her husband got recalled for being a bad ambassador. And everyone was like, Oh my gosh. Wow. Lady Mary Wortley Montague. And I have praised her for doing this. But I recently found out and recently, I mean, yesterday that in fact, in America in the 18th century as well, There were a lot of enslaved West Africans who also had brought the practice of inoculation to America. Like, this was being practiced all over West Africa. I had no idea. That's fascinating. So we're going to link an article from the Royal Society, which is like an in-depth thing on this. Uh, In particular, this – someone who Cotton Mather, who you might have heard of, had enslaved. Uh, He brought up this whole inoculation thing. People, like, interviewed him. And they were trying to like determine where he was from. And essentially, they end up thinking it's probably just like West Africa region, however much area that encompasses. But I just, I just thought that was so fascinating. It's something that I feel like in particular with my interests, I've heard a lot about Lady Mary Worley Montague and I heard heard nothing. <laughs> Mm -hmm. in my decades of life about people from West Africa bringing this idea of smallpox inoculation to the United States like 230, 40 years ago, um, which is amazing. So That is great. Good article
0: to to bring.
1: Nonfiction! Yeah! Um, And with that, let's just jump into our first sponsor for the episode, which is TBR, Book Riot's personalized book recommendation service. It is time to check out TBR. If this is Book Riot's subscription service offering tailored book recommendations hence TBR, for readers of all stripes. With TBR, you tell our professional book nerds, we call them bibliologists, about your likes and dislikes, whether you want comfort or stretch reads, and what your reading goals are. And then you sit back while they comb through your Goodreads account, or Storygraph, if you have one, and handpick recommendations and must-reads for you. TBR offers plans to receive three hardcover books in the mail, or three recommendations by email. So there's an option for every budget, and the recommendations only level is available worldwide after each order give your bibliologist feedback update your requests to stay in line with your reading goals and expanding horizons and basically have your own personal book concierge this is like um this is like stitch fix but for books Mm-hmm. is exciting uh visit mytbr.co to sign up today it only takes a few minutes that is mytbr.co
0: Excellent. Uh, So for this week's Nonfiction in the News segment, we have a couple other articles that are more related to news of the moment, not history, (laughs) I guess. (laughs) Um, The first one is a piece of sad news. Dr. Paul Farmer, who um, was a a global public health expert and um, noted figure in that area, uh, passed away earlier this week from a cardiac event. uh, He was at his hospital in um, Rwanda, I believe. And so I know about Dr. Paul Farmer because of the book Mountains Beyond Mountains, The Quest of Dr. Paul Farmer, A Man Who Could Who Would Cure the World by Tracy Kidder, which is a really great narrative nonfiction book that basically tells Paul Farmer's story. But he, um, uh, as part of his like long career in public health, he has opened hospitals in countries around the world, like Haiti. He, and he's worked really hard on the social aspects of public health and trying to connect people who don't otherwise have any resources to proper and sufficient medical care. He uh, founded a global health organization called Partners in Health, and that organization has helped lead public health efforts for strategy or for diseases like tuberculosis and HIV and Ebola. And he just is a really influential and stellar person. And so I was really sad to hear um, about his passing uh, over last week. So we'll link to an article from Vox that talks a little bit about some of his big impacts. And um, if you haven't read Mountains Beyond Mountains, I think it's a really beautiful, important book and just really changed a lot of my perspective on medicine and the world, which I guess I didn't really know a lot about it before that either. But it's really great. And so that is some sad news.
1: I wasn't really familiar with Paul Farmer's work, but it just like the number of things that people are talking about with, like, his career and all the things that he's done. It's it's really amazing. And this it just feels like a, a real loss, even though it's someone I had not heard of before.
0: Yeah, for sure. People
1: are doing that work silently sometimes.
0: Yes, yes, definitely. This isn't one of those examples of a person, like, you've talked about that cares deeply about something and then, like, really goes all in to try and fix it. And his is – you know, more widespread maybe than like a particular tree frog or something, but still a person who really cared deeply about something and made a big impact in that area. Um, the second news story I wanted to mention is more fun. <laughs> um, it's from page six, and it's about Britney Spears. She has set to pen a tell-all book. Uh, for She got a $15 million deal to write a memoir. There's like not very much information about it. She is going to be um, publishing with uh, Simon & Schuster um, there was a bidding war for multiple publishers all over the book, and uh, one of the people that they quote in the article says that the deal for the memoir is one of the biggest of all time, just behind the Obamas. So, like, that's kind of that's kind of amazing to me. So, I'm just I the one of the reasons I got excited about this is because I listened to Jessica Simpson's memoir a couple of years ago, and it was just great. It was so interesting to like revisit this singer that I liked as a teen and a youth and like revisit all of the stuff that was happening around her uh, that I didn't register at the time. Um, And so I really think that this one could be really fascinating, especially like getting into her conservatorship and what that was like. And like just exploring like how badly we treated female pop stars. And so I'm just fascinated by it. I'm excited that she's going to write a book.
1: That's we were yeah, we were talking about how strange it is to be like, you know, if you were alive or like remembering all the stuff that happened, was it 10 years ago or more? More. More, gosh. And yeah, just like then learning more about the context of all of that, especially around like Brittany's breakdown and everything uh, where you did only see like a very much an outsider perspective and like the news just going in hard in um a pretty unkind way. Then, yeah, I, I agree that it would be really interesting to, to see this.
0: Yeah, so we we will see what that comes out of this memoir, but I definitely will listen to it and I hope she reads the audiobook because I think that would be my preferred way to absorb that work. So we'll find out. Uh, so with that, we will jump into new nonfiction, which is books that are out recently or out soon that we are excited to share with you. So my first pick gets out a bunch. It's a book about conspiracy theories, which I just, I just love. So the book is called Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything by Kelly Weil, which came out February 22nd from Algonquin. Um, and so this is a book that is about today that connects today's like conspiracy theory movements with the flat earthers and how all of those conspiracy theory and conspiracy mindsets are connected to the early days of flat earth theory in the 1830s so the author is a reporter for the Daily Beast. At that organization, she covers extremism, disinformation, and the internet, and so she has a real background in this topic. And so, um, so the book starts with the kind of the birth of the flat Earth movement back in the 1830s. Uh, the The idea of like a flat Earth is is much much older, but like the flat Earth movement really doesn't start until that time which is well after, like, we knew that the world was round. And so um, that's a really interesting part of it. And so then she connects it back to, like, this um, commune. Like, everything crazy starts back to a commune, right? <laughs> <laughs> On some level. Um, and so she kind of traces the history of the movement and then looks at how social media and algorithms have kind of given it more space to breathe now. And then what, like, contemporary people who believe in the flat earth theory and how they come to believe that way, and then how that this particular conspiracy theory connects to other stuff like anti-vaccines and QAnon and all of that. It is really fascinating. She had, like, the vibe of it really does feel like the Daily Beast. Like, it's sarcastic and kind of wry, but she's not mean to anyone. Like, you can just tell that she sort of has these one-liners where you're like, ah, yes, I see that one. That I see what you think right there. But I think she does give good space to, like, really trying to understand where the beliefs come from and like what how they came to be, even if it's kind of accepting that like they're not they're completely false and they don't make any sense. So I just think this one is really fascinating. It's a like a conspiracy theory book, but it's like feels really contemporary and has a lot to tell us about what is going on all over the place today. So that is off the edge, Flat Earthers Conspiracy Culture and Why People Will Believe Anything by Kelly Weil.
1: That is fascinating. Have you watched the – it's funny because I was literally just watching this before we started recording. Um, Have you watched the Netflix cartoon Inside Job? No. Oh, my gosh. It centers (laughs) around – basically, it's the people who work – it's like a workplace comedy, but it's set at this company that works with the shadow government. And it's basically Uh like – the premise is like all conspiracy theories are real and coordinated by this organization (laughs) – Oh, fascinating! <laughs> it's really good. It's the um the showrunner. Her name is uh, Shian Takeuchi. She, she worked on Gravity Falls, and oh. so it's like a more mature comedy for like it's not like aimed at kids, you know? It's like yeah. adult cartoons, but um, it's it's very fun,
0: and I really that does enjoy sound it. fun. That does sound fun.
1: Anyway, also okay, and it's funny that you talked about the flat Earth theory, which started in the 1830s, because my books about the 1830s. Oh, love
0: it. <laughs>
1: what Look at a that transition. This is one of those real like this is for me books. <laughs> it is The Republic of Violence: The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America by JD Dickey. You might hear Andrew Jackson and say, "Boo," and you would be correct. But what is fascinating about this is okay, so the 1830s in America were just a bananas time. Like there was a lot of violence, there was a lot of um Like, new, weird groups. And, I mean, the fact that Flat Earth came about during that time, not surprising. Like, people had a lot of ideas. And I Mm -hmm. don't know why. But, yeah. If, like, if you want to read about just, like, a wild time in America, 1830s. Just across the, I guess, colonies. Wait, no, they're states then. Anyway. So, in particular here... Um, it's, this is when abolition was really starting to get going. I mean, you had manumission societies, right, in the 18th century, um, run by like Ben Franklin, et cetera, But in the 1830s, it really started to coalesce as like an actual movement for getting rid of slavery, particularly of black Americans. So you had uh, this very violent in general kind of thing happening in the country and then you had these people who were trying to change something which of course always makes people mad so they had to deal with uh, basically the, the early abolitionists were incredibly brave so this book talks about them it's the black and white men and women who were just really digging into their beliefs and what they thought was right and working against what was kind of commonly held as being right and that's so hard <laughs> you know like mm-hmm. working against like a common sort of attitude and especially I mean this is we're al- we're almost at 200 years ago with the 1830s which blows my mind
0: mm-hmm.
1: but um so what JD Dickey does is just really go into what the general state of the country was at the time how this violence was showing itself and then how the abolitionists emerged and what they did and how, like how kind of what they had to deal with. Which, again, I just like, mm, what a story. So that is The Republic of Violence, The Tormented Rise of Abolition in Andrew Jackson's America
0: by J.D. Dickey. That one sounds, yes, very Alice, but also sounds really interesting. Um, I <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a
1: book you would like, but it also sounds interesting.
0: It <laughs> oh, didn't come out the way I wanted it to. <laughs> I understand. I get it. I get it. Yeah. You know, just like the I, – I guess I hadn't really thought about like where the abolitionist movement grew out of. You know, like I think we don't talk about that a lot other than like at a really high high level. So that's, yeah. that sounds like an interesting piece of context for a lot of what we're talking about now. Well, and you get a lot of
1: the other social activist movements spinning off from the abolitionist movement. So like mm-hmm. women's suffrage spun out because women were being discriminated against in abolitionist meetings. And mm-hmm. they were being told they couldn't speak, et cetera. So then they were like, well, <laughs> that, no, you know? So yeah. then they started focusing more on, on women's rights. Anyway, it's just – it's very fascinating.
0: Very cool. Very cool. So my next pick, it, it takes a turn. It is a it is a turn. Uh, and it's called What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma by Stephanie Fu, which came out also February 22nd from Valentine Books. And so this is a memoir about a woman investigating the science behind complex PTSD and how that diagnosis shaped her life. So the author was, the kind of start of the memoir is when she's 30, and she kind of on paper has this extremely successful life. She's working as a radio producer at This American Life. She has a great boyfriend, but she also is suffering debilitating panic attacks, sobbing at her desk, and has really like had those kinds of uh, symptoms and experiences for for years. And so she has spent years in therapy. And finally her um, therapist is like, do you wanna know what I think is wrong, what is wrong with you? And sh- uh, the therapist diagnoses her with complex PTSD. So normal PTSD is about like related to a specific traumatic event. And complex PTSD is about when trauma happens continuously over several years. And so after the book opens with her receiving this diagnosis, she jumps back in time to look at her childhood and her time as a teenager where she experienced a lot of childhood abuse. She was abandoned by her parents in her teens. And kind of just went through these, like, years of abuse and neglect, which is um, a trigger warning for all of that. It's Parts of it are very difficult to read. And so she kind of goes back to explore that and then goes on to look at what changes in her life once she has this diagnosis and what she can. um, Because she discovers that there's not a lot of, like, resources available. And so she starts digging into that and trying to really understand, like, what is complex PTSD and how How can I I move forward from this? Um, And so she looks, she interviews scientists, psychologists, tries some different therapies. She looks at her... um, kind of immigrant community and what she can learn from them. She uncovers family secrets in Malaysia where her family is from and like looks at trauma inherited through generations. And so it's a really kind of comprehensive book trying to understand this diagnosis, but also like her story um, as a an child of immigrants and um, a person who really suffered in her childhood. Um, so like I said, a lot of that part, the childhood part is really difficult to read. She has some content warnings in there um, early in the book to kind of set the stage for that but said in the intro talks about like wanting to share those experiences that people have a stage and can really understand like what she is trying to to deal with as she moves forward so not a like easy book to read but i I found it super fascinating and i love the way she's kind of pulling together so many different threads trying to understand something that probably affects way more people than we really know um but that isn't really well known so, What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma by Stephanie Fu.
1: Wow. Yeah. I had never heard of complex PTSD.
0: No, me either.
1: That's, yeah. I mean, it's always. I like when books will specifically talk about, like, either like new diagnosis – not new diagnoses, but, you know, like a not as known diagnosis mm-hmm. and, you know, connect it with their story and real- just also just lay out, like, this is how it can mm-hmm. manifest. Yeah. And yeah, that sounds sounds hard, but it sounds it sounds really good.
0: It also has a really it has a beautiful cover. Ooh. Yeah.
1: Ooh. Is that are those flowers?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, I don't And it's yeah, it's got like these beautiful flowers, but then there's bones like in them, so it's very kind of creepy, but yeah, I just I think it's a great cover. And
1: it's using that novel font, but it's a memoir.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, My last new pick is Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths by Natalie Haynes. Natalie Haynes wrote A Thousand Ships, the novel that came out in 2019, which is also about Greek mythology. This is kind of the the niche that she has carved out for herself. And I think A Thousand Ships was really popular. I haven't read Mm -hmm. it yet, but I'm interested. So this is her nonfiction, which she's written a couple before, but obviously this is just coming out here. It's already out in the UK. But essentially it's talking about how – Men have always told the story of Greek myths. There has been a little bit of kind of like a let's take this back, you know, thing in recent years. She focuses on there are 10 chapters and she focuses on different women from the Greek myths. So there is Medusa, you know, I feel like we've heard a lot about Medusa being recast, etc. But there's also Pandora and Clytemnestra and Eurydice and Medea and oh, Penelope. I love Penelope from the Odyssey but she talks about things like in the original like in hesiod's version of pandora there is no like she she doesn't like release the contents of a box which as far as i was aware mm-hmm. <laughs> that was all she was known for <laughs> yeah so it's it's you know like what was the original story what is a possible alternative interpretation um which i love that kind of thing let's look uh, like let's look at the story from a different angle and just really seeing either how has this been twisted over time or how else can we view it and again breaking it up into like one chapter for each person i just love that kind of Because so then you can do like one at a time and like step away etc and just learn about greek mythology which is still with us in like a huge way which is bonkers because it's been like three thousand years but these stories are just Dare I say timeless. Okay. <laughs> um, again, that is Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek
0: Myths by Natalie Haynes. Yeah, that sounds really fascinating, especially, like, connected with, like, we've been seeing a lot of retellings of Greek myths from female perspectives in fiction, but I hadn't really seen something similar in nonfiction, I don't think. Um, I cr- I might be wrong about that, but I, I don't, I'm not recalling anything off the top of my head. So that's...
1: Jess Zimmerman did a thing about women, like, monsters like, like oh. Greek myth monsters but it was a lot more about like also blending it with like her own story mm-hmm. and not really as much about research so I would say this is a different take for sure
0: yeah cool so I think like pairing fiction and non-fiction this might be a cool thing to pair with some of those other like Greek myth retellings that we've been seeing so oh, yeah, yeah really yeah interesting pick that's a good one all right. So with that, we will jump into our second sponsor. Uh, this week, we're also sponsored by Book Riot's newsletters. Uh, did you know that Book Riot has over 25 newsletters covering every genre, as well as book news and deals? Sign up for book deals to get notified about the best book sales of the day, handpicked by our editorial staff. Uh, another option is Today in Books, which sums up the most interesting literary headlines every day. There's also the Riot, Run- Riot Rundown, a roundup of our most exciting new content, or the New Books newsletter that compiles a list of the week's best new releases and comes to you every Tuesday, which, if you didn't know, is new release day in publishing. We also have newsletters for horror fans, romance readers, YA enthusiasts, mystery slash thriller aficionados, and more. Just go to bookriot.com slash newsletters to sign up for whichever ones are most interesting to you. All right, so uh, it is the beginning of March, which means we're going to do another International Women's Day-themed episode because this is our favorite, and we do it every year. And there are always more great books about women across the globe that we can highlight. So, Alice, you are up first.
1: All right, I'm here to smash some misconceptions, Uh, unfortunately, because I really love (laughs) historical (laughs) myths. (laughs) Because usually that story is more fun. But my first pick is Infamous Lady, The True Story of Countess Ersabet Bathory by Kimberly L. Craft. Side note that I am not positive how to pronounce Ersabet Bathory. For all I know, it's like Ersabet Bathory, but Mm -hmm. she's also known as Elizabeth Bathory. So we're going to say that. Yeah. This is Elizabeth Bathory of Hungary from the 17th century. She is known to have... uh, or known as having, let's say, uh, murdered over 600 women in her village and bathed in their blood in order to retain her youthful appearance. She's called, like, the most prolific serial killer of all time. This is, like, you know, like, made up. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's – this story stayed with us because it's very interesting and mm-hmm. weird and um, – you know, again, like why oh, those sorts of things just just stick around. It's like H. J. Holmes, right? Like they made up all these stories about him. Mm-hmm. But this one's the story stuck around a little longer. But it appears a lot of this was made up in the 19th century, which makes sense because there were a lot of like lurid Victorian tales. And in Kimberly L. Craft's book, she is an attorney. She's a legal historian. And she has spent a lot of time researching, like looking at Elizabeth Bathory's trial transcripts and the depositions, there were over 300 witnesses, um, as well as private letters that are now translated into English. So in her biography, she looks at like, what was the story? How did it come about? And then what is the actual, you know, sort of history of Elizabeth Bathory? The reason I wanted to talk about this for International Women's Day is because not only it's women's history, not only laudable women... <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like Elizabeth Bathory was amazing. But also, I was watching a very bad movie on Prime the other day called Eternal, which is about Elizabeth Bathory in 2004 Montreal being a vampire. So it just made me want to talk about her. The movie is fun, but it's not good. Uh, again, that is Infamous Lady, the true story of Countess Elizabeth Bathory by
0: Kimberly L. Kraft. That is a great pick. It sounds super fascinating. There's so much good stuff in there. But the thing I am stuck on is over 300 witnesses at a trial. Like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. What, what <laughs> were they doing? They were, The thing that I
1: heard about her is that, like, they were actually trying to take her land. And uh-huh. so I think they were really just being like, here's all these people who are definitely against her. And this is why she <laughs> should have her property taken away.
0: Man, I just like how long would it take to go through 300 witnesses? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I'm you're, stuck on that detail. You're in this like whole the thing, logistics but... of it all. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the logistics of a 300 person jury trial. Like, what? That's a good point. That's not really the takeaway here, but great pick. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Alright, my first book is called It's Not About the Burqa: Muslim Women on Faith, Feminism, Sexuality, and Race edited by Miriam Khan uh, which is a book that came out in 2021 and it is a collection of essays by 17 Muslim women who are a mix of both British and international women writers. And so the kind of premise of putting this essay to, essay collection together was that in 2016 the editor Miriam Khan read that uh, I think at the time Prime Minister David Cameron had linked the radicalization of Muslim men to the quote traditional submissiveness of Muslim women and so uh, Miriam Khan was like I don't know any Muslim women who would say that that is how they are so why are we hearing all these stories about Muslim women from people who are not Muslim and not women and so she um decided to put together an essay collection that addresses that and really kind of explores Muslim women speaking about themselves and their own experiences. So the idea of the burqa in the title is um, like that that is a thing that is that is sometimes the only thing that people really know about Muslim women is that they cover their heads. And so she wanted to sort of use that as a way to say, like, no, this is what the media tells you. But, like, we are a lot more than that. And so there are essays in this collection about faith, about love and divorce, about feminism, queer identity, the threats of, like, uh, racism and um, religious discrimination coming together. um, And really, like, tries to understand, like, what does it mean to be Muslim women living in the West today? What I really liked about this is they're, like, in a lot of essay collections, right, like, there's, like, one or two Muslim contributors, and so they're sort of, like, the like the one Muslim story that you hear through some of that, and so this one is really not that, and you have all of these women writing from, like, one, like, that perspective of spirits of being a Muslim woman, but they have it from so many different angles, and they're able to dive deep in these really particular kinds of stories and really, like, round out ideas that we might have about Muslim women, so... um There's one really awesome essay about one woman writing about bodies and exercise and modesty and her experience growing up with a uh, Muslim mother who was a single mom who had a, a child out of wedlock and what that meant for her in their, um, their really tight knit community and then like their kind of generational conflicts around feminism, which is just really fascinating. There's another one by a woman who is an African Muslim woman working on an oil rig. And so, like, what, and, and she writes about how her life in that environment was easier before she became quote woke. And then after she did what that happened, what that meant for her in that work experience and in her community. There's one that's really t- striking to me about white feminism and how it doesn't include muslim women and how it doesn't really leave space for muslim women who choose to continue to wear a hijab or a head covering and how like the how it misses like the intersectionality of those different types of experiences so it's just super wide-ranging there's a lot of really interesting voices really like a a kaleidoscopic kind of look at different issues above being a Muslim woman in the world today. So it is not about the burqa. Muslim Women on Faith, Feminism, Sexuality, and Race, edited by Miriam Khan.
1: Oh, that sounds really good. You said that, like, came out really recently?
0: Yeah, it was, like, 2021. Um, and I guess I, I'm not sure if it came out in the UK first, but, yeah, it's super recent. It was not on my radar until I was poking around my library looking at different titles, and I thought, that is that is perfect.
1: I mean, you know that I love a collection of essays by different people. Yes, so, I do. Yeah, that is fantastic.
0: Put it on your list. <laughs> I will.
1: Another one of my picks for International Women's Day is Njinga of Angola, Africa's Warrior Queen by Linda M. Haywood. Njinga is also known as Nzinga. Uh You can find it both ways online. I think Wikipedia says Nzinga. It's N-Z-I-N-G-A. But – And Jing is really fascinating. So, she was the queen of what is now Angola. There were, it was like two kingdoms in that geography in the 17th century. And what I really like is Haywood compares her to like Elizabeth I and Catherine the Great in terms of her political cunning, but also her military prowess. So, like, what she was doing this entire time in her reign was trying to deal with the Portuguese who at the time were just like everywhere in terms of colonizing and but particularly I believe in Africa and so she was trying to keep them from kind of like taking over her kingdom and just did a lot but at one point she like sent them one of her ambassadors and with like hey like here's a deal with you you know like do this and whatever and they beheaded her ambassador Hmm. like that's not cool Portuguese (laughs) um anyway so there was just like there's a lot of drama there was a lot of like you know you thought that she was down then that the Portuguese had won but then she came back and then she like fought this guerrilla war against them and it's just it's really really interesting and I feel like you are hearing a little bit more about Nzinga nowadays but um definitely did not hear about her when I was growing up and I'm really happy that there is this biography of her. So that is Njinga of Angola, Africa's Warrior Queen by Linda M. Haywood.
0: That sounds so good. I I love books about queens. I don't know if we've ever done an episode that's just like books about queens, but I Ooh. That, that's a future idea because that sounds really fascinating. And like a woman ruling at a time when you wouldn't have thought in a place you may not have thought. And yeah, oh, great pick. Super cool. Super cool. <laughs> All right. So uh, my next pick is uh, Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot by Masha Gessen, which uh, is a little bit older. It came out in 2014. And so uh, Pussy Riot is a, a Russian feminist protest punk rock and performance art group that was founded in 2011. And so what they did while they were together and have continued to do is uh, do these like punk rock performances in public places and then post them to the Internet. And so they became... um I guess most famous or sort of got on the world's radar in February of 2012 when they did a performance inside Cathedral of Christ the Savior in Moscow, which is a huge uh, church in Moscow. And so uh, their performance after it happened, it was condemned as sacrilegious. And so three members of the group, uh, Nadia, Kat, and Maria were arrested and convicted of hooliganism motivated by religious hatred. And they were all sentenced to two years in prison. Uh, and so this book by Masha Gessen is a look at how that happened. And so it focuses on mostly on these three women who were arrested, but there are multiple other members of Pussy Riot. I think it's like between 11 and 15 women total. So it tells kind of their backgrounds, their stories, um, how Pussy Riot was formed as a group, um, what actually happened at the church. Like there's a whole section that just like goes through the day of this performance and like digs deep into it. And then what happened at their trial and after they were sent to prison. And um, since it was written in 2014, there's not a lot about obviously what has happened since then, but it's a really good like moment in time of these women and their experience and what their protest in Russia looks like and then what the implications of protest in Russia can be for people So this one got on my radar because um, I recognize Masha Gessen. Uh, They are a Russian-American journalist, author, and translator. They've been a critic of Putin and Trump. They're also a prominent um, LGBT rights activist, um, one of a few in Russia, since that's not a thing that is accepted there by many people and politicians and the government and all that. Um, And so they um, have written several books. Uh, the one I remembered after I saw this one was called uh, The Man Without a Face, The Unlikely, Unlikely Rise of Vladimir Putin. Uh, and then also in 2015, they wrote a book about the Boston Marathon bombing, uh, the two brothers that committed that uh, terrorist attack. And so I just, you know, I love books by journalists, and I was, given everything that's going on in the world, I was interested in something... That would kind of get at protest in Russia, and um, I found this one, and I just it's uh, it's really great. Uh, I love the way that Gessen is profiling each of the women. Um, they write about having to sort of correspond with them in prison and what that is like. What they like weren't able to to talk about via like letters and stuff, and. Gives you a sense of Russia and, like, the protest movement in that country and just a lot of different things. So it's a little bit older about something that happened, um, you know, a decade ago now. But still, I think, really fascinating. Words Will Break Cement, The Passion of Pussy Riot by Masha Gessen.
1: I mean, that feels relevant.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. My last pick is... To Joy My Freedom, Southern Black Women's Lives and Labors After the Civil War by Tara W. Hunter. I, okay, so maybe not everyone reads a lot about the Civil War, (laughs) like 19th century American history. It's really interesting. I am currently reading Team of Rivals on audiobook, uh, which I'm almost done with. And it's just been a lot about the leadership at the time of the Civil War. And this book fascinated me because it is specifically focused on Southern Black women's lives after the Civil War, which I just don't see a lot in the Mm -hmm. literature, if at all. So this is talking about what happened with the newly emancipated Black women workers and a like the ones who went to Atlanta, which was this hub, right? Because it's like, it's a metropolis within the South, which was mostly rural. And how they were able to build lives there in the 1860s and beyond. So this was like a lot of household laborers and washerwomen, and figuring out what they wanted or what they were able to make their lives like after this, because obviously there were still a lot of barriers. So talking about also their... Their optimism immediately post Civil War, and then kind of because there was a lot like you, you got, um, you had a lot of black, I think men, I don't think, and no, it would be weird if black women were elected because they couldn't vote. There were a lot of black men who were voted to posts, um, and held government positions, but that was quickly. There was a a backlash to that. So there – but there was this, like, brief period where it was like, oh, something, you know, new and different can happen. And then Mm -hmm. it was like, no, it's kind of like the beginning of COVID. (laughs) Anyway, so it talks about, like, their initial optimism and then, you know, like, what happened as, um, like, Jim Crow laws started to come into place and – what their lives were like, like, through that journey. And, again, I just, like, I just never see books like this. So to see something that is so focused on, not, you know, like, oh, here's how, like, American businesses dealt with, like, post-Civil War, which is the type of thing you'll see a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the most interesting parts, I would say, is just the way that these Southern Black women were resisting efforts to keep themselves Economically depressed and medically victimized, which we see up through, you know, the story of, let's say, Henrietta Lacks, which mm-hmm. you know is pretty well publicized. Um, but these women were fighting against it even in the 19th century. So again, that is to joy my freedom: Southern Black women's lives and labors after the Civil War by Tara W. Hunter.
0: Oh man, that one sounds really good too. Like that's a good under the radar potentially, or or just different story that we don't talk about enough. So yeah, great pick. All right, with that, we will wrap up this week's podcast as we normally do by talking about the books we are reading uh, right now at this very moment. Uh, As we mentioned at the top, we're both in the middle of like a bunch of books right now. So uh, the two that I would like to finish next are White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation by Lauren Michelle Jackson, which I talked about a couple episodes ago. It's about uh, cultural appropriation and how uh, white people have benefited from uh, different parts of black culture and trying to kind of dig into that um, through some different lenses. And then uh, the other one is The Story of You, An Enneagram Journey to Becoming Your True Self by Ian Morgan Crone, which is a new book about the Enneagram and about uh, the stories we tell ourselves and how we can use some of what we learn through the Enneagram to help us move through our own stories and think about our lives in different ways, which, you know, your mileage may vary on that for many different reasons, but I'm finding it very interesting. So
1: I love the Enneagram.
0: I know. Me too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so uh, as Kim did indeed mention, we are reading a
1: lot of different books. It is a scattered time. But one of the books I'm reading that I find really fascinating is The Taking of Jemima Boone, Colonial Settlers, Tribal Nations, and the Kidnap That Shaped America by Matthew Pearl. Matthew Pearl has done um, kind of like literary non, not nonfiction, like literary historical fiction in the Mm. sense that it's like, like based on like Charles Dickens and um, yeah, it's interesting. So I I'm always a little wary when I see a novelist is writing nonfiction, particularly about, you know, like history. But it's been this fascinating story about Daniel Boone had a family, and he had like a daughter who was I think like twelve and she was kidnapped. And um it's talking about like Tribal, like, nation politics in the 18th century in Kentucky, settlers, like, basically going against British authority, which said, don't colonize further west. They went anyway. They got into fights with, like, the Shawnee and the Cherokee. There's all of this fascinating stuff. I thought Daniel Boone lived in the 19th century, but no, <laughs> it was like late 18th. And when they talk about him going west, he was going to Kentucky. There's just, there's just a lot. Where I'm NFL like, up. what? What? Like all the time. And, um, this is how I learned about, oh, they talk about a, one of the leaders of one of the nations went across the ocean to visit George the third. Cause he was like, I want to meet your leader. So we're going to go. Huh. And, yeah. And then he hugged him. And, Cause that was, the, <laughs> that was like what the culture was. And everyone was like, Oh no, because he hugged the king of England, but. Oh my gosh, like there were so many things that I'm just like, how do I not know this? Oh, I just, I just love history. It's so <laughs> good. Anyway, so I'm not even that far in the book and I've already had my mind blown like multiple times. So very excited. It is again, The Taking of Jemima Boone by Matthew Pearl. And with that, you can find us on social media. I am at It's Alice Time and Kim is at Kim the Dork. Our amazing audio editing for this episode was
0: done by Jen Zink. Thank you, Jen. If you have a few minutes, we'd love it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Uh, that helps people find us more easily. And then you can follow us there so you get new episodes the very minute that they come out. With that, I'm Kimukara. And I'm Alice Burton. And we thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Four Real Podcast.